to be able to safely enter here and to uh, know how much you love and care about us, that you intimately know us, you know our thoughts and our concerns, you know all the things that happen to us and nothing happens to us or in this world that surprises you. You know all things, Lord. You are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, you're timeless, and you're the great I am. It's just so wonderful, and what a privilege we have to come into your presence. We're your workmanship. God, you have made us fearfully and wonderfully. You have made us. You've made us in your image, and you knit us together in our mother's womb. And all of our days were ordained before even one of them came to be. How wonderful are your works. We're here this morning to lift you up in praise and just to sing together, to have prayer together, to have fellowship with each other. And you're so amazing. We ask for your presence here this morning. We want to hear from you. We want you to speak to us, Lord. We know it says in your word that where two or three are gathered together, that you're in the midst and so we ask your presence to be here. We ask for your forgiveness. Um, we've allowed sin to enter into our lives and to corrupt our hearts. The sin in our hearts has been exposed by the way that we act and the things that we say and the things that we do, the way we treat each other. In some cases, Lord, we've willingly pursued the sin or in other cases, we've just uh, unintentionally just fallen into it. But we ask for your forgiveness, and we ask for you to show in our hearts where the sin is, to, to reveal it to us. Father, you, in the you are in the business of softening hardened hearts. And so we ask that you would soften ours, that you would search us and expose that sin that resides there and lead us into repentance for the sin that's there. Fill us with your grace. Make us into a people that reflect your character and the image that you made us to be. We're aware of so much evil in this world and the pain and the suffering that occurs. Even in our own lives, Lord, there's events that happen to us, uh, things that we go through, circumstances that bring pain and suffering Sometimes it's visible, other times it's not. Sometimes it makes us act out in ways that we don't even understand. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal those things to us. We see innocent adults and children senselessly murdered. Our struggles with addiction, financial concerns, broken relationships. And then there's the issue of partiality, Lord. We may not like someone for the way they look or the things they say and maybe even the color of their skin. Father, there's sadness and depression and we ask, you know, where are you? Are you listening to us? Do you hear us? But the truth is, you're still here. We're the ones that have moved. We have moved away from you. We've tried to become our own God and our own idol. 
We are a broken people. We have become so busy and so involved in the world's demands and our own desires that we've lost our way and our relationship with you is not what it should be. Father, bring us back to you. We are helpless to do this on our own. The world and its sin-filled systems ensnare us. Our old nature wants to control us and the enemy in his subtle and subductive, subtle ways. And he wants to kill, steal, and destroy from us. And so, Father, we ask for your help. We plead with you to bring, bring us back, to bring back the lost, to restore broken hearts, to lift us up from the miry pit. We need our hearts transformed by you and our minds renewed. Woo us back into an intimate relationship with you. Speak to us through your word here this morning and during our quiet times and as we spend time with you. Through the prayers that we give up to you, through our relationships and conversations with other believers. Father, remove the sin of fear and anxiety that paralyzes us and causes us not to be able to move or to react, that causes us to think that you may not be good or that you're ignoring us. We know that's not true. Remind us that you are always present and walking with us, even as you were with the young men of old in Babylon when they were in the fiery furnace. Restore us to the joy of our salvation. Father, speak to those who have come today desperate to hear from you. Comfort them. Father, move the mountain they are facing. Level the path they are walking. We plan our path, but you direct our steps. Help us to take the next step, even if we can't see beyond it, knowing that you are good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read to you as, um, our scripture for this morning. It's Colossians 2, 8 through 15. And if you're able and can, would you stand while we read God's word? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head of every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the working of God, who raised you from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, 
having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. In a, it, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is God's word. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Going to make one quick plug for the high schoolers trip to Ghana. Um, as Tanya mentioned earlier, our high schoolers are going to Ghana. And I just want to point out they've actually been the high school ministry has been planning an international trip since 2019, and then like their plans were to go in 2020, and then of course 2020 happened, and uh, and then they're like, okay, we'll move it over to 2021, and, and pandemic and things and, and world unrest were still going on. So finally here in 2022, it looks like God's opened the door, or everything's going together. Um, so please, if you, if you can, would love for you to, to see those names, look in the bulletin, learn about the trip, pray for these kids. Um, and if you are able, do seriously consider uh, contributing a little bit to make sure that we can get them over there as safely as, as possible. Because um, this is a, a multi-year planning in the making, and we're very excited for them to finally be able to, to go. Uh, well, this passage that we're going to look at this morning provides us with the opportunity to discuss something that is becoming increasingly more important in, in our lives and in this world with every passing day. And that is, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we figure out, how do we live according to what is true? This is a really hard question to answer because at no time in human history have we ever had so many choices, right? Have we ever had so much content, so many opinions and worldviews competing for our attention and our devotion? Every single day, you and I walk out into a world that is full of people and organizations, corporations, political parties, religious institutions, advocacy groups, and, and on and on and on. And all of, these, all of these groups are ready to challenge our beliefs, change, ask us to change our values, and demand that we think and act and live according to what they proclaim. There is almost a, a, a nonstop invitation to, to, uh, to switch sides, to change the way that we, think, we think, change the way we live. And while much of this, perhaps most of this, these daily battles for what we believe is, is about things that maybe ultimately aren't super important. Things like, did you like the newest Marvel movie? Is the parking garage in Aggieville ugly or just kind of okay? You know, is Whataburger really any good? That's a big one in Kansas City right now. There are, however, instances when beliefs that we hold closest to our heart are the, are the things that are called out. Those are the things that are doubted. Those are the things that are declared wrong by others. There are times that when the truth of the gospel and of our, of our salvation, the truth of who our Savior is, is questioned. And, and it's at those times where we have to ask, our, ask ourselves, well, what do we do when this happens? What do we do when we begin to question what is truly worthy of our trust? How do we decide between what is acceptable for us to include in, in our understanding of how the world works? Those are the sort of questions that the Christians in the city of Colossae were asking 2,000 years ago. From the context of the Apostle Paul's letter, we know that these people, these teachers had showed up in the city and they'd sought out these Christians and they had begun to teach them that what they believed, specifically what they believed about Jesus, was, was just not enough. 
All, of the, all that they learned about Jesus and his gospel, about his life and his death and his resurrection and, and the life that flows out as an implication of all those things, what they were telling them was that that's not enough. More is required, right? More, more ceremony, more sacrifice, more regulations, more different kinds of obedience needed to be added to their faith in Jesus. And as the Christians in Colossae heard these challenges, they began to wonder, well, how do we figure out whether or not that's true? How do we discern whether or not what's being told to us is correct and whether or not we need to add things to our faith in, in Jesus. So in response, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the, to the Colossians, and in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, as Steve read for us, he is, we see that he issues this very big command, and he issues this very big, bold claim. Right? And the command is that we are not to be fooled into believing what is false. Right? Do not be fooled into believing what is false. And Paul can make this command because of the claim, because you could be confident of all that you know to be true in Christ. Right? Do not be fooled into believing what is false, because you can be confident of all that you know to be true in Christ. And these may seem like really simple or straightforward ideas, but honestly, the more you press into them, the deeper you go, the more you realize just how tricky it can be to refuse what is false and stay, and stay close to what is true about the world. We'll unpack this command and this claim as we work through this passage this morning. But before I go any further, I want to ask all of us to do something that, that honestly might be pretty humbling and a little bit hard. I'm going to ask you to seriously consider whether or not this, this biblical perspective, this biblical idea, these, these commands and these claims, whether or not this is something you probably need to see as, as necessary in your own life. You have more than likely, very recently, been fooled by something that is false. You have more than likely, very recently, traded your confidence in Christ for something that seems flashier or more relevant, but is ultimately powerless. If the suggestion of that makes you maybe squirm a little bit, makes you a little bit uncomfortable, then that discomfort might very well be conviction. And instead of running away from it or fighting against it, instead of kicking and screaming against it, Let's seek how we might confess our errors and correct our path. Let's all of us together consider how we might repent from falsehood and move closer to all that is good and beautiful and true in Christ. To do this, we're going to go back and look again at verse 8 and see what Paul's uh, first command was, that do not be fooled into believing what is false. So in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it said, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See to it, Paul says. Take special care. Pay special attention, particular attention to what you believe so that you are not taken captive, that you are not overpowered, that you are not swept up or swept away into hollow and deceptive philosophy. There is a subtle yet incredibly important instruction to notice here at the beginning of verse 8. It's, it's, it's within that phrase, see to it. And what Paul is saying here is that you are responsible for your own thinking. You are responsible for your own grasp of the truth. You are accountable for the things you believe, the things you say, the things you share, and the way that you present truth to others. You are to see to it that you are not fooled by falsehood. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be aware of your personal responsibility to the best of your ability to speak only what is true. You must take the time to consider the things you hear, 
The news you read, the experts you listen to, the people who influence you and carefully determine whether or not what they say is true and whether or not it is worthy of your trust. We live in a world that is obsessed with rapid reaction and breaking news. And, and we all too often, we all do this, we hear something and, and we spend a little bit of time Googling it, all right? Maybe we go to a, a, an editorial from our, our favorite news source or our favorite place that kind of confirms our own, you know, preconceived notions, our own biases. And, uh, and we spend about 30 minutes of internet searching, what we call that research. And then we charge forward into the social arena with what we feel is an incredibly righteous perspective that we need, just have to share with the world. We would be much better off to remember that throughout Scripture, The righteous are those who are slow to speak and quick to listen. Then in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 20, the writer asks, Do you see someone who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for them. My point is this, before we can ever even get to the process of discerning what is is true and what is false, the first crucial step is to slow down. Give yourself time to listen and to learn and to think. Give yourself time to pray and to ask God for wisdom and discernment before determining what you believe to be true. And if you discover that you have a pattern, that you have a habit of sharing information or opinions that sounded true when you first heard them, but then you later discover are full of falsehoods, if that's kind of your pattern, if you, if you find yourself falling into that over and over again, then, then you likely need to repent As a reminder, repentance is not just confessing that you are wrong and seeking forgiveness. Repentance is turning around. It requires a change in your patterns and behavior. To repeatedly engage in spreading false information, even in ignorance, is disobedience. It is something that should not characterize the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. To repeatedly engage in spreading false information, even in ignorance, this is disobedience. It is not something that should characterize the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we all need to do better with this, right? This is, I'm not telling you this so that you can feel smug and kind of think about all the people outside of your life who need to do this, right? This is something that we all need to take in personally and reflect on and figure out how we can do better. We must be sure that we are not fooled by hollow and deceptive philosophy, by ways of thinking and acting that are devoid of intellectual or moral or spiritual value. Such things are vain and full of lies. And it's more than just a misunderstanding. This is, this is a, systematic and diso, a systematic way of being disobedient and wrong. Paul provides a, a grid for, to help us determine what qualifies as hollow and deceptive philosophy, what, what qualifies as these, the sort of stuff we want to be avoiding and what we should not be believing in. He says three things. He says, does it proclaim a truth that is dependent on human tradition? Does it proclaim a truth that is dependent upon the idolatry of this world? And does it proclaim a truth dependent on anything other than Christ? If anyone tells you that something is absolutely flawlessly totally true, and it falls into one of these categories, then you need to be very careful, because chances are pretty good that it's not actually worth believing in. So let's take a look at this first one. Does it proclaim a truth that is dependent on human tradition? Another way of of saying this might be, did humans invent this, or did God demand it? All right, is this truth the product of, of human speculation or divine proclamation? The classic biblical example of this is in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and, and, he, and he's talking to them about all of these things they've been adding to the religion, all of these, these, this, this stuff they've been adding to people's lives to add on. And he tells them that they are letting go of the commands of God, 
and instead holding on to human traditions. And it's, it's the holding on to these human traditions that's actually driving people further from the Lord. They had added a bunch of rules and regulations and requirements to the religion and demanded that people could only be righteous if they obeyed these extra man-made laws. But human traditions do not make someone righteous. Only faith in Christ and obedience to God's will as revealed in his word can do that. You don't need Christ plus, plus other stuff, right, to be a good disciple. You need Christ and Christ alone and the life that flows from that unique and glorious union with him. So what might a modern example of a human tradition be? What, what does it sound like? How do, what is it like to encounter one of these? A couple of examples that I've heard uh, recently, even, are, are, are some of these. In order to be a Christian, you must be a member of the Republican Party. That's a human tradition. Right? The truth is that no political party should lay claim to your allegiance. It is, that allegiance is totally given over to Christ. We should never allow our affiliation to the right or to the left or to anything in between become a litmus test for our faith. In order to be a Christian, you have to remain silent about the bad things that the church has done that could hurt its reputation. That is absolutely a human tradition. Church history does not need to be whitewashed, and church reputations are not worth the silencing or the sacrifice of the people God loves. Cover-ups do far more to damage the church than does honest confession. In order to be a Christian, you have to love everyone exactly the way they are and accept whatever they say is true and right for themselves. This is a human tradition. Followers of Christ are, of course, called to love all people, but there is a difference between love and permissiveness. Jesus showed us that it is possible to love others while still telling them the truth about what is right and what is wrong, about what is sin and about what is disobedience. God's will is our standard. Christ's example is our model. And we must humbly walk the line of loving others while still being honest about sin, both their sin, but especially our own. Here's the bottom line. Qualifying someone's Christianity by something other than their faith in Christ is a human tradition. Right? Qualifying someone's Christianity, qualifying someone's faith in Christ by something other than Christ is a human tradition. I'm not saying that the fruit of someone's life is not important. It absolutely is. I'm not saying that there is no place for judgment or correction or rebuke. There absolutely is. But far too often, we get way too close to saying things like, you may have faith in Jesus, but you also really need to have fill in the blank. And it's that blank, it's that addendum that we need to stop believing in and stop invoking. Do not make the mistake of using man-made righteousness to measure the quality of your faith or the faith of others. We preach Christ crucified. We glory in Christ resurrected, and we shape our lives around these truths. The second warning of hollow and deceptive philosophy was, does it proclaim a truth dependent upon the idolatry of the world? And this one's a little tricky because I, I changed, the, I used the phrase idolatry of the world in place of the phrase elemental spiritual forces, which uh, is from verse 8, and that, that phrase attempts to translate a really uh, rare, extremely rare Greek phrase that shows up almost nowhere else. And, uh, but, but the idea is that ancient peoples used to believe that um, there were fundamental elements to creation, right? It's kind of classically seen as earth, air, wind, and fire. And then in combination with those elements, you would also have the spiritual or supernatural forces behind them that were connected to them in some way. 
So the danger Paul is calling out here is the tendency for human beings to look at all of creation, whether the material or the spiritual, and give their worship to it rather than to God. We have a word for, for that. We have a word for something that, that receives, uh, something created that receives the love and the devotion that belongs to the creator. And that word is idolatry. And any philosophy, any way of life that embraces idolatry is simply incompatible with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We cannot be steeped in idolatry. And before you write this off as something that, that may apply to other cultures or may be a problem in other parts of the world but, are, but is not a problem here, consider this. We may not find very many statues of gods or, or temples making sacrifices to appease the spirits that control the weather, or the seasons, or our fortunes. But we do have a serious problem with idolatry here in America. The supposed gods that we are most often encouraged to worship and please are not found in sacred spaces. They are found in our mirror. Because here at home in our daily lives, the most common and insidious form of idolatry is the idolatry of self. We are under a constant barrage of messaging that preaches a false gospel of the power of you. You determine your own truth. You determine your own worth. You determine the things like your identity or your gender or your sexuality on whatever spectrum that you like the most. You determine the priority of your life, the rights that you must have, the freedoms that you must have. You determine whether or not there is a God, and if you decide that there is, you also decide that that God must be whatever best fits what you need. You are, in fact, your own little God, and the world owes you whatever you decide is best for you. We are all, each and every day, encouraged by almost everything around us in the world to think in these ways, to put ourselves in the place of God, and to worship all that we want, and all that we think, and all that we determine is best for ourselves. Consider how different, how, how warped this way of thinking is when compared to something like Job 38. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, Who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang and the angels shouted for joy? We are not gods. We are not worthy of worship. Our self-righteous thoughts and schemes and worldly idols are worthless. And if you want to be free of hollow and deceptive philosophies, then you must rid yourself of idolatry, including the kind of idolatry that puts yourself at the center of everything. That space does not belong to you. It belongs only to God. Paul sums up his grid for determining hollow and deceptive philosophy with the simple question, does it proclaim a truth dependent on anything other than Christ? It all comes down to this. Is your worldview, is your way of life, is your moral compass and your hope and your assurance of salvation, your definition of who God is and what he expects of you, is it dependent on Jesus? If such things are dependent on anything other than Christ, then they are misplaced and their foundations are on nothing better than shifting sinking sand. And why is that? Why is it that, that it must be Christ who, who we are so confident in? Why is it that Paul says, do not be fooled into believing what is false because you can be confident of all that you know to be true in Christ? 
In verses 9 through 15, Paul launches into a grand declaration of the many beautiful, powerful, life-changing promises of our Savior. In verse 9 and 10, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So in, in Jesus, in Christ, in the incarnation of Emmanuel, of God with us, all of the fullness, the full nature and being of God dwells permanently in flesh and blood form. Wherever Christ is, there so too is God. This means that to be with God, we don't need a temple and we don't need a place. We need a person. We need a relationship. We need as much closeness and oneness with Christ as we can manage. Jesus preached the importance of abiding with him, just as a vine depends on the branch or the fruit depends on its tree, because to live in closeness with Christ is to move closer and deeper into that ultimate desire of God's heart, that he would dwell with us and we, would, and we with him forever. Jesus, in verse, nine, or in verse 10, is also said that he is the head over every power and authority. In Christ, we follow the one who is in charge and in control. No other power or authority, including yourself, can be brought before Christ and claim supremacy. If you feel powerless or overwhelmed, if you look at all that is happening in the world and think, what hope is there in this madness, in this much evil, in this much death, remember that to follow Christ is to follow the one who defeated death and overcame the world. We can enjoy triumph over such powers as darkness, over all that is awful in the world, only in Christ. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In Christ we are brought into the only true promise of everlasting resurrected life. In scripture circumcision is fundamentally a sign of covenant. It is a representation of being part of something bigger than yourself, of being a promise between us and God. And although physical circumcision was demanded in the Old Testament, the circumcision Paul speaks of here is not one that we perform, but is one that is performed by Christ through our union with him in faith. Christ cuts away, he puts off the flesh, which is a shorthand of saying he, he cuts away our life as sin, rendering us capable of finally, truly following him. The payoff in all of this is that instead of being captive to hollow and deceptive philosophy and the ways that can only let you down, the ways that can only fail you, you can take part in everything that has been promised. A life of freedom. A life of being a part of the work of God himself. When you were dead in your sins and in your circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In Christ, we have all the true freedom we desperately, desperately need, but cannot attain on our own. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, and freedom from death. We are all, each and every one of us, dead in our sins, stuck in, in, this, in this fleshly, sin-riddled life that could only have one outcome, eternal condemnation under the just wrath of a broken-hearted yet holy God. That same God, in the greatness of his mystery and mystery and awesome power of his love, made us alive in Christ. 
All your sins are forgiven, Paul writes. All your sins are forgiven. I know you've heard that before, but don't you dare let that become something that you consider to be common or old news or just another theological truism tucked away somewhere in your memory. Everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do, that disqualifies you from sharing in the presence of God, every single one of those things has been wiped away, totally removed, blotted out, eliminated at an unimaginable cost. The ledger of our record, the ledger of the record of the sins of the world, the sins, my sins, your sins, the sins of the person on your left and on your right, all of that was held in the hands and the heart and the will of the one whose, whose hands were driven into the cross with rusty iron nails driven deep into the blood-soaked wood of the cross. You and I are set free from all that ought to condemn us thanks to our, thanks to our Christ who died, our Christ who has risen, and our Christ who will come again. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. In Christ we have victory. The power of sin and death is broken. The cross, that horrifying method of murder for the king of creation, was transformed into a mighty triumph over evil. We may still live in a fallen world, but the darkness of all of its agents has been disarmed. In Christ, your Savior lives. He reigns. And the power of his victory is available to all those who follow him, who draw near to him, who abide with him each and every day. Now, you may be sitting there and thinking, okay, this is all really great stuff, right? This is all stuff that I believe in, but how does this help me actually not be fooled by what is false in the world? When you are confident of all that you know to be true in Christ, and when you commit yourself to be humble and, and humble yourself every day to a worldview that is full of his kingship, full of his control, that is in submission to his forgiveness and his victory, then I truly believe that two things will begin to happen. First is that you are going to care a whole lot less about being right in the eyes of the world and care a whole lot more about being righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And because of this, your conduct and your character will begin to look a whole lot more like that of Christ. You're going to love God, love one another, and love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to delight in things like peace and patience and kindness and goodness. You're going to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and say, that's how I want to live my life. Seeking the kingdom of God, accepting, the meekness, accepting meekness as a blessing, being a peacemaker, and being satisfied with nothing but the words of my Savior. You are going to learn more and more how to speak the truth in love. You're going to stop seeking to be the loudest voice in the room or on the internet and seek to be more and more the kind of voice that is compassionate and speak compassion in the lives of those who are broken and who desperately need to know about Jesus. Do not be fooled into believing what is false because you could be confident of all that you know to be true in Christ. So this week, I'd like to challenge you to do two things. The first is go before the Lord and ask him to reveal anywhere, anywhere in your heart, any place where you have fooled yourself by what is false in this world. Any place that you have accepted how, a hollow and deceitful philosophy. Ask God to expose where you have accepted the lies of human traditions, of idolatry, and of anything that opposes Christ, and repent. Really, truly repent. 
Seek forgiveness and commit to change. Stop spreading what is false. The second challenge is this. Really and truly look at all that you know to be true in Christ and praise him for it. Write prayers. Sing songs. Tell other people about what you know. You are a follower of the king of victory. Rejoice in that truth. It's more wonderful than anything this world could possibly have to offer. Would you all please pray with me now? Father God, we ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have followed after what is false. We ask your forgiveness for anything we have done that has contributed to spreading things that are just untrue throughout the world. We ask for your forgiveness. We also ask you to lead us into repentance that we might change and be people who truly speak what is good and beautiful and true, who have the words of God, who have the gospel of Christ, quick to our lips, quick to share it with others, who are also slow to speak, quick to listen. Father God, please let this word rest in our hearts the way it needs to. If it's through conviction, bring us conviction. If it's through humility, please humble us that we might be more like Christ in the way and, 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 more, and more appreciative, more just overflowing with praise of who he is. Correct our worldview to be so saturated with the joy and the wonder and the presence of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are able, I would invite you to stand.